Blog Talk Radio. So you want your charity to succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern-day fundraising success, and practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect place to learn from experts around the world who, along with our host, provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books cover a broad range of topics from major gift fundraising to use of social media and how to succeed online. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you maneuver through this economic downturn in the charitable sector to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. Remember, this is a live call-in show. Become part of the show by adding your voice. Call now at 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Just click on radio links. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome here to the latest edition of The Nonprofit Coach. I am your host, Ted Hart, and today is Tuesday, May 14th. 2013, and I'm coming to you live from the global headquarters of the Charities Aid Foundation of America. As the announcer said, this is a live call-in show. You can also join us over in the chat room. I see some folks over in the chat room. You can ask questions there. You can also email me today at tedhart at tedhart.com. As always here on The Nonprofit Coach, we start with page one news. We're going to start off today the show with a little bit of a birthday announcement, so we're going to play our birthday music, and then I'll tell you who we are celebrating today. are celebrating the 100th birthday of the Rockefeller Foundation. For the richest family of their era, the goal of the foundation was fittingly ambiguous, to promote the well-being of mankind throughout the world. With that mission, underwritten by the vast wealth of John D. Rockefeller Sr., the Rockefeller Foundation was chartered 100 years ago in Albany, New York. For several decades, it was the dominant foundation of the United States, breaking precedent with its global outlook and helping pioneer a diligent scientific approach to charity that became a model for the field. So happy 100 years, first 100 years for Rockefeller Foundation. You can follow along and read more about the Rockefeller Foundation and their 100, first 100 years over in the radio links today at tedhart.com. Just click on radio links. You will find all the links for today and all the archive links for the shows for the last couple of years. You'll also find links there to all of our newsletters You can sign up for our newsletter at p2pfundraising.org or right there at tedhart.com. Next up here on page one news comes to us from PR Daily. Over at PR Daily, you can see the best social media tools for 2013, at least so far. 
halfway through, some of the folks that are getting a shout-out are uh, DomeBinder. Uh, do you own a lot of domain names? Well, DomeBinder can help you with uh, managing all of your domain names. Uh, Woobox.com, this has become a big favorite um, at many workplaces. Woobox.com is a Facebook brand page app service that provides a host of free and paid apps ranging from Instagram tabs to complete solutions. And over at tagboard.com, if hashtags are a big part of your social media presence, then Tagboard is for you. Tagboard tracks hashtags across all major platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Vine, and others, so you can see where the tags are being used. You can create your own Tagboard and give an aggregated look of all activity across many different spots. So uh, this particular article is going to share with you the top 10 uh, social media uh, tools for the first half of 2013. Check it out over in the radio links today at tedhart.com. Next up uh, here on The Nonprofit Coach, each month it's my pleasure to welcome uh, Eva Aldrich, uh, who joins us from CFRE.org. Uh, CFRE comes here to The Nonprofit Coach each month and shares, us, shares with us the CFRE Minute. Hi, Eva. Welcome back here to The Nonprofit Coach. Hi, Ted. It's good to be here. Well, it's great to have you back. What is news over at CFRE? Well, I think one of the biggest things is that we've had a number of requests over the last year from individuals who are going to be you know, retiring from the profession about is there a CFRE retired status. So that is something that I'm happy to report that we're going to be taking an active look at, uh, discussing with not only our, our certification agency but also with our board. So I would say within the next few months I'll be able to come back and give some good news in terms of, of what we can do for those CFREs who are retiring but who want to make certain that their affiliation with the credential um, is, is still maintained and acknowledged. Well, how wonderful to uh, to be able to do that because, of course, those who are retired are not going away forever and they can be continue to be advocates uh, to the field. And uh, here at the Nonprofit Coach, we, of course, try to do everything we can to draw attention to certified fundraising executives. So I'm pleased to uh, hear that your board will be taking up that issue. Um, other things going on over at CFRE? We've had a very busy uh, first part of the year. I know yesterday I just got back from the Fundraising Institute of New Zealand. Uh, they certainly have some you know, big enthusiasm for CFRE and uh, are looking at increasing the numbers of New Zealand CFREs by, by 50% within the next year. That's their stated goal. So just more power to them and for all our other participating organizations who work so hard to promote the credential. How many uh, participating organizations are there with a CFRE credential around the world today? We have approximately 20. Okay, that's terrific. Well, CFRE continues to grow, and here at the Nonprofit Coach, we encourage all of our listeners to consider becoming certified, and you can find out information at CFRE.org. Ava Aldrich, thank you again, and we'll uh, catch up with you next month for the CFRE Minute. Sounds great. Thanks, Ted. Take care. Um, next up here on the Nonprofit Coach, I, I think you'd have to be living under a rock right now not to know that one of the uh, big issues facing nonprofit status and the IRS that gives grants that status uh, is uh, all of the controversy regarding uh, whether or not conservative groups uh, were being targeted uh, for additional information. Uh, here at the Nonprofit Coach, we are explicitly nonpartisan. Uh, so we will uh, not weigh in on that particular 
other uh, topic, except we have provided you with links over in the radio links today, so you can read all about it and how this is unfolding. Uh, but I will just remind everyone that any nonprofit organization must have social welfare and not political activity as its primary purpose. Uh, and from what I've read so far, I would say that with groups that have been uh, particularly vocal in the uh, partisan arena, if I were at the IRS, I might take a second look at any group, not just targeting any political flavor, but making sure that they are getting it right for nonprofit status, for those who have social welfare as their primary purpose and not political activity. So that's all I'm going to say today on that issue. Um, next up here on the Nonprofit Coach, uh, we have uh, Susan McDermott, uh, who is a regular here each month, letting us know who the guest is going to be on the next edition of the AFP Wiley radio show here on the Nonprofit Coach. And uh, Susan McDermott, welcome back here to the Nonprofit Coach. Thank you very much for having me, Ted. I appreciate it. Do you like how I tap danced around that very important topic? <laughs> with, yes, I. Uh, without, you said a lot without saying anything. Uh, said a lot without <laughs> saying anything, right? Um, but you've got a big. Uh, first of all, you've got a big guest, and we want to thank you again for recruiting such a a, a noted uh, expert uh, to be our next guest. But you also. I uh, want our listeners to know that the date of the show has also changed. I'm going to leave it up to you to make all those announcements. Yeah, absolutely. Um, typically, the guest uh, that I announce comes on your show uh, next next Tuesday, uh, the, the following Tuesday, the Tuesday after I speak. Uh, in this case, the scheduled uh, show is going to be taking place on Thursday, May 23rd. And your guest uh, will be uh, author uh, Janice Gao-Petty, who is the author of Nonprofit Fundraising Strategy, A Guide to Ethical Decision-Making and Regulation for Nonprofit Organizations. Um, well, Janice has been a noted. <laughs> yeah, she really is. She has been a noted expert in uh, in this area for a long time. Uh, has deep roots with AFP and has just written an outstanding book uh, to help organizations maneuver through difficult ethical decisions. So I, that's why I, I thought I would bring you in right after that IRS uh, yeah, uh, discussion. Today. Absolutely, absolutely. In this, uh, in, in this instance, it's a contributed book, and several of the members, uh, several of the contributors are members of the AFP Ethics Committee. And, um, and you know, what's great about it is it's not just uh, it's not just narrative. It's actually giving practical tools and techniques to help them navigate these um, difficult waters. Of, uh, <clears throat> yeah, and, and part of what has to happen in, in any of the situation of that sort is, of course, cool heads. And, and my fear here in, in this IRS issue is that uh, things of these this sort become so emotional that yeah. stepping back to say, okay, what are the standards and should there be uh, scrutiny regardless of political flavor? But if you are out there in a very public way, taking political stands, um, it's my hope that the IRS would take a double, triple, uh, or more look at any organization of any political flavor uh, that might be bending that political um, uh, involvement rule so that uh, we in the nonprofit sector and donors who are looking uh, to support uh, nonprofit organizations who receive such a status know that there is a standard. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I um, I think that this book is more timely than ever, given what's going on in the news. Yeah. And it's wonderful that uh, as part of the uh, ongoing AFP Wiley radio series uh, here on the Nonprofit Coach um, uh, next Thursday, and everyone, please note that that is a date change. Normally we are here on Tuesdays, but the show will be Thursday, May 23rd, and uh, as uh, 
uh, Susan just said, uh, the eminent uh, Janice Galpetti, uh, who is an expert in these areas, will be talking to us about ethical decision making. And and I find whenever you say the word ethics, you know, people's eyes sort of glaze over. But as you said, this is a very practical guide on on how to maneuver through ethical decision making and regulation uh, to have a successful nonprofit organization. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and I find um, I think that you know uh, why there's there's sort of a little bit of pushback um, when you say ethics is because everyone likes to think that they're ethical and that the organization they're running acts ethically, and that's not always the case. Uh, um, and we need to take a deeper look. And 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 by by speaking on this, we're not suggesting that there are a lot of folks who are unethical, but it's knowing where those lines are. It's knowing where. Um, uh, how to make those decisions that I'm hoping that all executives who listen to the nonprofit coach will take this opportunity to learn from such an expert. Exactly, exactly. You're going to have a great discussion with Janice. Absolutely. And that will take place next Thursday on the AFP Wiley radio series. And thank you, Susan, for uh, bringing us such a, a terrific author as part of that series. And I'll talk to you again next month. Sounds great, Ted. I'm looking forward to it already. Thank you. Take care. Uh, next up here on the Nonprofit Coach, back here on Page One News, you can follow along at tedhart.com by clicking on radio links. I want to draw your attention to um, a really terrific article um, uh, regarding Volunteer Match. Um, and uh, this is a brief history of volunteering in America. Uh, this country has relied on volunteers from its very start, and we're known around the world as not only being very philanthropic, but also being a country uh, well-known for our volunteerism. Uh, colonialists uh, banded together to survive the harsh new world, forming support groups uh, to each other uh, to help each other plant crops, build houses, and fight diseases. And uh, Benjamin Franklin developed the very first volunteer firehouse in 1736. And so uh, the uh, fully, uh, more than 70% of all firefighters today are in fact volunteer uh, and can date back to 1736. So wonderful article uh, that we're providing to you over in the radio links today just to make note of the wonderful history we have here in the United States as volunteers. Uh, and uh, the last thing that I have here on page one news is just draw your attention again in each of our weekly newsletters that come out before uh, the Nonprofit Coach radio show itself. We always make note of the LinkedIn group that we host, the People to People fundraising group, which is really quite active and continues to grow. Uh, we make note of the fact that we just went over 2,300 members. There are now, as of today, 2,306 members of the People to People fundraising group over on LinkedIn that we host. And you can find a link to that through our newsletter uh, at tedhart.com. So just click on newsletter and you'll be able to go directly there. So we want to draw your attention. If you're not part of that, you can join thousands of colleagues around the world who are having active discussions about topics that matter to you. Next up here on the Nonprofit Coach is our Page 2 expert. It is my pleasure to welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach, Mark Pittman, uh, who is a well-known author and expert in fundraising, and he's going to be speaking to us today about his new book, Ask Without Fear. He's also also founder of FundraisingCoach.com, and we're providing you a link in the radio links at tedhart.com today to Fundraising Coach 
www.mark.com uh, and some wonderful articles that Mark is providing to you free of charge over on his website. He also has his weekly email service, which is called Fundraising Kick. Mark's expertise and enthusiasm has caught the attention of such uh, wonderful organizations who are drawing attention to philanthropy through Reuters, CBS, Fox News, and the Chronicle of Philanthropy. And, get, uh, and it gets him invited to speak to many groups who are very happy to have uh, Mark as their speaker because he always does an excellent job. Ask Without Fear and a simple guide to connecting donors with what matters to the most. Welcome here to the nonprofit coach, Mark Pittman. Thank you so much, Ted. It's good to be here. Hey, Mark, thank you for uh, taking the time to join us because here on the nonprofit coach, we always strive to bring the very best in thought leaders and those who are providing excellent advice to nonprofit uh, organizations and executives around the world. Um, today, in particular, um, we want to give people access to you, uh, to hear you, and to learn from you um, because oftentimes they either can't get, a con- get to a conference to be able to. Uh, hear from people like you or can't afford the fees. Um, so the uh, nonprofit coaches here is an opportunity for them to uh, benefit from your years of experience and the wonderful work that you do. So why don't we um, start off, if you don't mind, by um, just first of all telling us a little bit more about fundraisingcoach.com, and then we'll wind back to this very impressive and important book. Well, thank you so much. Uh, uh, fundraisingcoach.com started back, gosh, it was almost – I guess my first coaching experience was about 20 years ago when I uh, met the, this wonderful woman. Four months later, we were engaged, and four months after that, we were married. During the four months of, of engagement, my parents got me some, uh, got myself and my wife, the person who became my wife, six months of Zig Ziglar coaching. And uh, so we each had individual coaches and started planning our life beyond the marriage or beyond the wedding day. And that just got me involved into coaching. Uh, and so I've had a coach on and off since then. In 2003, I it was, it had the opportunity to take over my family home in Maine. And I went out to Franklin Covey, became certified as a Franklin Covey executive coach, and started fundraisingcoach.com because there were so many. I had some interesting – I'm glad to know this isn't typical, but I've had some bad uh, – consulting experiences, both being the consultant and having one. And I just felt like there was a there had to be a different model. There had to be a um, a different form of training people from their desk. So they didn't have to go to an expensive conference. They didn't have to um, have the someone on site with them all the time. But they just needed some tips, some coaching, some strategy, and somebody outside of the whole you know, the whole um, employment structure. It wasn't someone, it wasn't their board. It wasn't their CEO. It wasn't someone that could fire them. It was just someone to give them space to, to brainstorm some stuff. So fundraising coach was started then. And I uh, run the email list continually. I have a free email that goes out every other Tuesday uh, since then. And, and uh, what sorts of organizations turn to you that, that find that particular brand of, of coaching style consulting uh, to be really beneficial? Well, you know, whenever you go through any sort of training, you become a zealot for it for a while. And so now I've morphed into coach and consultant speaker, you know, so I, I kind of blur the lines. But the the ones that come to me are often um, e- either – I had a college come to me because they had a, uh, a fundraiser who was better at fundraising than fundraising. And so the HR office actually hired me to work with this particular person. He ended up taking over the entire fundraising operation at the college, which was great and leading it to great success. Um, 
others one there was a, a spay and neuter clinic in Birmingham that came to me and rather than having me come down and do a one day training they ended up spacing the how to start the their entire fundraising program comprehensive fundraising program um, they with weekly calls for a number of months and so those were those were recorded and we were able to put them together with a whole plan to get their their year off and space it out in real life so when different opportunities came up we were able to capitalize on it it's so usually it's both start, ex, experienced and inexperienced organizations. Right. So is this a through your your fund coaching? Is this an opportunity for folks who um, are rather unique, which oftentimes fundraisers are within their organization? <laughs> I always uh, tell the uh, tell the story of when I uh, served as uh, CEO of the University of Maryland Medical System Foundation. Uh, we had you know 21 staff people who showed up every day with one thing in mind that was to raise money. Uh, for the organization, but there were thousands of people <laughs> on campus uh, whose one uh, idea was to uh, do the best job that they could for the patients that were entrusted to us. Um, and from their perspective, we were just the people who threw really good parties. Um, Amazing, so, isn't it? So when you're in that environment and you're trying to instill a sense of, of fundraising and philanthropy, um, sometimes you need somebody outside of your four walls uh, to be able to talk to and to exactly, but just tell me I'm not crazy. This is what I'm seeing, kind of. Thing. Or if I am crazy, I'm not alone in this kind of craziness. Okay, <laughs> so that's just kind often, of sort of counseling. Often the case too. Yeah, I get those people. Those are definitely there is a subset of people that are well, we're hired because of our skill set, which is often not the mission of the organization that we're we're joining. The mission was created to do something else. They figured out, oh my goodness, we got to fund it. And so we have people like you and me and, and our colleagues that are actually wired to enjoy talking to people and asking them for money and asking them uh, to invest in the cause. But there's also CEOs that are realizing now uh, that they really need, they need to be the lead fundraiser. And they're reluctant. Some of them are reluctant. But the, I, the, that's so. That would be the other subset of of people that are calling me, um, just to learn how to do it better. And then the third one is I've been blessed all the way through uh, to have board members just call me out of the blue and say, "Look, I got on the board. I was lied to. I was told it wasn't going to take a lot of work and I'd have a lot of fun. And now they're asking me to sell thousand dollar tickets to a gala. Can you coach me? I read your book. I'm really intrigued with this. So um, I love I love to have that mix. Well, that's a, that's a great segue um, over to this fantastic book that you've written, uh, Ask Without Fear, A Simple Guide to Connecting Donors with What Matters to Them Most. So it, it almost seems to me that there's sort of two concepts there, and I want to sort of break that down because there's Ask Without Fear, which, which deals with the fact that you know folks are, are sort of thrown into the deep end to help with fundraising, <laughs> and, I, and I'm used to being really highly successful in my career. And now suddenly, am I going to fail? I'm, I'm fearful, but I can't tell anyone that I'm fearful. So there's sort of that aspect of the book. But then there's then, then there's this this other sort of softer side, or it seems that the you know less fearful side of connecting donors to what matters to them most, which is the portal to that fundraising. Yes, yes, and I, I didn't realize how. To me, that was just seemed evident when I wrote the book and that's what my, I actually, the title was crowdsourced. I um, polled people as I was writing the book because I had two really awful titles. And so the people that were read my blog and knew me um, around the world pitched in and, and created a much better title, but they got that. One of the things that they got from my writing and teaching was that 
what we get to do is connect. Well, this is how I describe it in seminars. That if you're, and for anybody listening right now, just look across the room at a wall and pretend that there are a whole bunch of electrical outlets on that wall. Um, here in North America, we have three pronged outlets. We have two prongs. Some of the old houses have two prongs um, that have a fat, or some of the newer ones have fat edge. Some of the older ones have two prongs without a fat edge. We used to have curvy appliance ones. When I was in, uh, speaking in New Zealand, they have Christmas tree type um, outlets. And our donor is the electrical cord. So as fundraisers, we get to walk up and down the wall of our nonprofit with our donor trying to figure out what outlet is the right plug for them. And then when we put them in, it's magic. It's just like they're when we connect them with what they're looking for, what they're interested in investing in, their eyes light up. And that's when we can truly ask without fear because we just don't know if the next the next ask is going to be that experience. Um, it almost began, I, ha, I was talking to some people in Philadelphia last week. I said, for those of you that have been in the been in the field for a while, it becomes kind of addicting, doesn't it, in a way? And I get a lot of nods of, yeah, because who wouldn't want to spread that joy? Now, when you're and talking really to people is, that are new to this, they're, they think you're nuts. <laughs> right, you right, exactly. <laughs> well, because they're putting the emphasis on the fundraising uh, rather than the, the emphasis. As I, as I always say, you know, if you're doing it right and you're, you're a development officer as opposed to being a fundraiser, and you and I can talk, talk about the difference between those two, but if you're a development officer and you're doing your job to develop the opportunities for people to give, then when you go to make the ask, it's less about the ask than it is negotiating the terms of their desire to do good. I used to not like the term charity because um, we're not a charity case, but I've gotten, I've since moved past get it, just getting over that because that's just a term people use. But, you know, when I, for a long time, I was, I wouldn't use the term fundraising as much as development because it's developing a relationship. It's developing um, uh, a connection with an organization. And you're absolutely right. It's not just sitting down negotiating a high pressure sales agreement at all. Exactly, exactly. But but that's where when you hear about fundraising, um, that's where people focus on. They say, well, it's it's professional begging. <laughs> I get the opportunity um, to speak uh, on stage with Seth Godin when he was in Boston uh, earlier this year to do an Icarus talk. Have you heard of those? Yes. Oh, yes. The 142nd talk, which for a verbal extrovert, I, I was shocked that I was able to do it with an 142nd. And you actually pulled it off. Well, I, was, I have to credit my wife with that. She she had looked at me a few days before. She she said, "Honey, are you, are you going to practice this?" I said, "Well, I kind of get the points." And she said, "This is Seth Godin, and uh, this is a kind of a big deal. Why don't you practice it? And why don't you like what you could use this to show the kids what you do?" Which that was the scariest audience for me that I've ever spoken to, I think, was my wife and three kids because they know me. <laughs> right. Um, but, yeah, so during so, the Icarus talk. So your talk, kids also don't know what you do. Uh, it's a bit of a mystery. Well, I have now. my daughter. What, you know, one of the things and when, I, when I knew I was going to be talking with you today, I went back to the blog talk radio that we did when I was running a program four years ago. Um, I don't know if you remember, but we talked about for about an hour. Um, and it was on the Ask Without Fear radio show. And part of what I joked about was, uh, my first question to you is, how did you get into this? Because I, you know, not many people end up growing up wanting to play fundraiser. Uh, but I've, now my kids do. They, my my eight year old thinks she's going to be a fundraiser. <laughs> kind of fun. <laughs> and maybe I mean, she, she certainly comes by it naturally, right? Well, she definitely. Uh, all of my kids are special in many special ways, but she definitely is one that, uh, with some increased people skills, she could be really, really uh, have a natural inclination for it. Yeah. 
She's a very focused individual. <laughs> well, that's great, and those are great skills. So, so back to ask without fear. So, when you when you wrote this, did you have in mind the uh, volunteer fundraiser or the professional development officer or both? That's uh, that's wow. You're the first person to ask it so so succinctly. For me, the book actually came out when I moved back to Maine. It was 2003. We were coming out of one of the many recessions, maybe it was in post 9-11, you know, things were starting to pick up again. But we're, I'm in rural Maine, and a lot of the organizations here are just really passionate volunteers that if they just had a little bit of skills could really fund the next level of their of their cause, whether it's building a kitchen for the soup kitchen or uh, buying a building for the arts program. There's just a number of things. So I actually wrote the book because people couldn't afford to hire me either at the at a coaching fee or at a full blown consulting fee, uh, and I and I felt like a heel because I didn't want I didn't wasn't trying to hold back on them, but I you know I, my kids need to eat, so right, I ended exactly. up writing it. There, there is there <laughs> is that other side of uh, of consulting in that you know you you do actually have to pay your bills too. Well, what I love and and you'll get this and and um, you know the take this for all of you listening to take this with a great assault. But what I love to be asked is, do you have a nonprofit rate? Because all of my <laughs> clients are nonprofits. Yes, I do. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> that's the one I just showed you. Uh, but I'm always, of course, like all of us, willing to work within people's constraints and all, because we do want to impart, you know, help people excel. But the book was a became a $15 way to help volunteers excel. So I always wrote it with the board member in mind. I wanted this to be something that, and, and intentionally left out, uh, some stuff that I would when I tell, did my seminars or the, it's on the Ask Without Fear DVD. I go into some more depth on actually how to research your project and your prospects. I didn't want board members to have any excuse, so I didn't talk about social media. I didn't talk about uh, research. I just talked to, wanted everything to be inspirational and really tactical uh, equipping so that they could go out and do this. But I knew in a real world, development people were the ones that were going to buy the book. And I've since been floored that people – there was a community college in, in um, Canada that was using it as a textbook, um, and there are other – it's been very successful within staffs of nonprofits, too, because probably because it's so thin. One of the things I aimed for was something that was less than 100 pages because – I didn't want it to be uh, intimidating to to a volunteer. You know, I can't imagine being brought on a board, not told you had to fundraise, then fund, then being realizing you have to fundraise, and then going and getting a tome, some large you know <laughs> textbook on how to ask for money. Um, with, what, you know, with Ted, the word one of good the, luck. <laughs> yeah, right. That's <laughs> the success. One of the neat things I found about that, though, trying to really everything in my life had always been pad it, trying to make it thicker, um, trying to make it really conversational and thin. Uh, kept me out of the weeds of direct mail fundraising and some other stuff that I would felt like I wanted to get in there. And it turns out that was good because the book's now been translated to Dutch, Polish, and Spanish because it's dealing with human interactions and human beings and in conversations. It's not dealing with you know U.S. postal code or 501c3 status. So it's turned out to be pretty translatable around the world too, which is happy accident of right. my audience. And now, one of the things that, that you say about your book is that it, it not only is it sort of short and easy to, to get through, but, but also easy to remember um, yes. tips. How, how, how is that? Well, part of it is the I, when I was looking at, you know, everybody that's been in fundraising for any period of time 
uh, knows is there is a lot of information on how to do good fundraising out there, but the people that aren't in it don't know how to access it. So I, that's when I, when I wrote the book, I had gone, went through almost that imposter syndrome that I think we all go through of who am I to add anything to this? There are so many great authors already out there. Um, so I thought about, well, as a Gen Xer, I heard get real a lot growing up. So what if I used real as the acronym? And that will remind people that they just need to be real, be themselves. You don't have to get – the picture I got when I was uh, looking at my the, – the person I was writing the book for was the person who thought they had to become this human contortionist, you know, wrapped up into a human pretzel to actually fundraise because they couldn't do it with the skill sets that they had. They had to, you know, become something other. They had to become this uber slick person that knew the timing for the right words to do the spiel, to, to extract the wallet from the person they were talking to. Um, and, and that's not it. So what I use get real uh, as an acronym. And then I try to, you know, there's stories in there in the book that also have made it. So it's really easy for people to remember quite a bit. Um, but I think anchoring it in people's own experience has made it so that it, it, in either in the book or in my training has made it so people can really grasp the ideas and that relief you can see that relief and i'm sure you've seen it where you, you speak to a lot too uh, uh where people realize that they don't have to be something that they're not right exactly they can yeah, actually do focus do on well who you are focus on as i as i always say focus on your passion and your story because that's going to impress people more than um memorizing some script well not only is it going to impress people more which it definitely does and we have the neuroscience studies to show that story is is how people remember things anyway. But the nice thing about it is, uh, I was just telling some board members during a campaign last year, you won't forget your story. <laughs> you might forget patient intake. You might forget these other statistics or however this, you know, the phases of the building, but you'll remember your story. So anchor it in your story. And if they have a question you don't know that is something that we can help you out with, either bring one of us along or just say that you can get the information. Exactly. Um, and we know that you'll remember it because it's yours. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And and that's what we all write off. I mean, no matter what profession we are, we write off, tend to write off our own experiences. Well, that that's just me. Uh, I didn't teach fundraising for 10 years after, you know, I'd been in it for 10 years. I taught other things, goal setting, time management. I've been doing seminars since 1999 when, uh, when I started my first blog, oddly. But I didn't teach fundraising because I didn't think I could. Um and so, because it was our own experience, it's our own story, and so there's. It's interesting how board members can be freed up. Absolutely. Have you seen the Asking Matters uh, profile? I'm sorry. Have you seen the Asking Matters profile about the four different asking types? I, I haven't, but what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break, and I want you to come back um, okay, and tell us about that. But I also want to make sure that uh, we explore the four steps for fundraising success. Cool. Uh, from your book as well. So we're going to take a really quick break, and we're going to come back, and I guess the, the number four is going to be in our mind when we come back. So we'll be right back <laughs> after this break. Just a few program notes. Um, as you heard at the top of the show today, we will have Janice Galpetti uh, with us on Nonprofit Fundraising Strategy, a guide to ethical decision-making and regulation for nonprofit organizations next week, but not on Tuesday, as you are used to uh, having us here. We will have our AFP Wiley radio show on May 23rd at 12 noon, so please note 
the change in date from the original announcement. Uh, then we will have our Memorial Day here in the United States, hiatus, uh, uh, for the uh, show that normally would be uh, held on May 28th. And so there will be no show, but a great time to catch up on all the shows that maybe you have missed. Uh, and you, we've provided the link for you at tedhartradio.com where you will find all the free podcasts of the Nonprofit Coach. We'll be back after that hiatus. You can mark your calendar uh, for June 4th. Uh, Andrea Kilstead will be here with us talking about fundraising power and asking for money. Uh, so don't miss those shows. And then we'll be uh, winding up uh, the uh, rest of June. Uh, so keep in mind that the Nonprofit Coach is on summer hiatus. July and August. So we will have shows for you through the end of June and then come back to you live in September. Uh, so those are our program uh, notes today. We're going to head back over to Mark Pittman here on The Nonprofit Coach. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And we're back here with uh, Mark Pittman, the uh, author of Ask Without Fear. And we've got our final 24 minutes here on the show, and so the number four is the big deal here. We're going to talk about <laughs> four steps for fundraising success. Well, I'm glad, first of all, that you that you said Andrea Kilstead is coming on the show because she is fabulous, and she's the one who came up with the asking styles. Um, you can get a – so I'll for listeners, if you want to find your asking style before she gets on the show, you can go to askingstyleprofile.com, and it will uh, take you to the site. And you, you if, if you're an extrovert or an introvert, if you're a task-centered people or a – uh, people-centered person, you can you can be a successful fundraiser and um, that is just it's an exciting profile that I'm really glad that she's worked on and elaborated. So I'll go into to the four steps though, if that's all right. Absolutely, cool? yes, please do. Super. So get real. The four steps are real. R stands for research. E stands for engage. A stands for ask, and L stands for love. Uh, where uh, there's a, if anybody's trying to scribble that down, if on the at fundraisingcoach.com, there's an article section, and this is really distilled in the do-it-yourself fundraising article. That's exactly. We've that. provided a direct link to that article section of your oh, uh, website over in the radio links today at tedhart.com. Super. Thanks. So the research, the the interesting thing when I, and I, I'm sure you experienced this too, Ted, when you when we're talking with nonprofits, we, I, used to think research meant researching prospects. But as I talk to more and more nonprofits, I realize that they need to research their own cause first, then research their own project. I was talking to one gentleman who oversaw three different nonprofit programs successfully, really doing great work in two states and one overseas. He was starting it up. I asked him how much he, was had, he had to raise from donations, and it took him almost 20 minutes to land the plane. He just couldn't figure out what his what his donate because there are fees and there are all these other income streams. And so donations are just part of it, but he wasn't clear in his own mind how much he was trying to raise. Uh, and there was, a, you know, another professional I was talking with took four weeks of coaching calls to, to actually figure out a hard fast. This is the goal that we're looking for because they were measuring other things too. And they just didn't know the dollars uh, as crazy as it sounds. Researching needs to start with what are you trying to accomplish? How much are you asking for? What's the best way to go through that? Um, and so, and I talk about that in, in uh, gift range using a gift range calculator. I know Blackbot used to have one up, 
Um, I have I created a free one at giftrangecalculator.com. You can just put your dollar goal in, and then it just shows based on you know all the studies that have been being done since World War II, kind of what levels you might want to shoot for, uh, asking people for. Because one of the biggest fallacies for board members is they think, well, we're just raising $100,000. We just need 100 people to give 1,000. Right, there you go. <laughs> as mathematical as that is, we're, we, we humans don't tend to be very mathematical. Um, so researching your cause, and then it, you start building the, the list. What I'd love to do, uh, and that's moving into researching your prospects, what I'd love to find is someone I could work with to create an app that would get Gift Range Calculator on a smartphone so that when a board member comes to our overworked stressed out fundraising professional and says, I think we need to raise a million dollars for this particular project. Instead of them groaning or them saying, yeah, that's great, I'll get back to you, I'd love them to be able to whip out their phone, punch in a million dollars into the calculator, see that the first gift should be 100000 to 250000 and you need five prospects, three to five prospects for that gift, and be able to say, okay, great, who do you know? Who are the five people you know that might be able to give us a quarter of a million dollars to that? And use their energy while they're still thinking energetically and expansive in an abundance space to actually start you know, calling their Rolodex. But um, I haven't been but able to figure that out. It also helps bring the ship into reality, <laughs> to say if if we if we literally have no one who is a prospect, so we have zero prospects at say over a hundred thousand, the likelihood of the organization successfully raising a million dollars is compromised. That was my first. Yes, uh, there was one organization I was working with, and they they wanted to buy a three million dollar building. They'd been in in, in existence sixty years. Wonderful organization that just lived hand to mouth on ticket sales. They didn't ha have any donation experience. Their largest gift. Had been five hundred dollars. They're about to hire me to do a feasibility study. The motion was on the table. It was seconded. It was open for discussion. And then I just got the sense. I said, "Wait a minute. What if I tell you you need to? You're going to after I do all these interviews and and work and digest all the data that we have here, and I tell you come out and say you're going to have to spend a couple of years developing some major donors. Uh, will you do that? Will you take my counsel, or will you just go ahead with the three million dollar campaign anyway? <laughs> right. And almost to a person, they had the integrity to say, "No, we'd go ahead with the campaign." And I said, "Then I respectfully, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Chairman, you know, board, I respectfully um, suggest that you vote down this motion that you do not hire me and you take that twenty grand and invest it in a in a media campaign for your community because there are good PR firms in this community." And uh, that would actually get you further to three million if you're not going to take the time to to develop the program. It's interesting. So yes. Well, and, and that's the interesting aspect of studies of that sort is that oftentimes they're just looking for you to validate the decision they had already made, rather than saying, you know, do we have the capacity? That's a great way to put it. Well, the other the the so the the positive way to look at this is. If you don't have those $100,000 donors or the $250,000 or the $250 donor, however, whatever size you're looking at, that doesn't mean you can't fundraise. It just means you need to reset, reset your goal and maybe chunk it up. I was working at a, a prep school where we wanted to raise $14 million. The feasibility study said that we could probably raise seven. So we just created that as two part, a two-part campaign. Our first campaign was the IBM True Blue. We've gone through a lot of transitions, so we were just pulling it together and saying, look, we're still the school you expected us to be. We're reaching for the future. And then they were able to do another larger campaign a few years down the road after that. Because they've built the infrastructure and they, they take fundraising seriously. Because what I always uh, point out to folks is needing money is not good enough. <laughs> That's because so get in line. Everybody wants right? money. Everybody needs money. 
Uh, well, and I, you, I don't know. I, I, what surprises me, and, and I'm sure I've done this in my own past, but is the people that cre- go through all the IRS paperwork of creating a 501c3 and then expect there to be some sort of cosmic magic Rolodex in the sky, some pool of money waiting to be funneled to their nonprofit. Um, it, so one of the things I talk about in, in Ask Without Fear is uh, the acronym PYITS, put yourself in their shoes. I always recommend people put yourself in their shoes. When you're looking at a donor, when you're looking at all the noise in a donor's life, just if, if you, before you send out an email or a letter, take a step back, forget everything you know about your nonprofit and read it and just say, how would I respond to that? Uh, and it's, it saved me a, a lot of headache, angst, and hurt feelings by just taking that out and save a lot of my clients that too. So we're still in research though. So I want to move. What the research does is get you clear on where you're going. Cause it, you know, that, that wonderful book uh, from decades ago, it, it called, if you don't know where you're going, you'll probably end up somewhere else. Uh, it's a great book on, on just life goals, but having a clear sense on why it's so important, why the time is right, kind of writing out a case statement, even if you don't ever use it as a case statement as we used to use it, uh, crunching the numbers in a gift range calculator of some sort, building your prospect list. You could then use Google. Google is amazing for research. You can type your name into Google, and then you can find all sorts of stuff that's publicly accessible about you. There's just about only two reasons that I think that people aren't wouldn't be found in Google. One is that they're not online, which still happens in today's age. But the other is that they're trying to hide it. <laughs> so that could be also an indicator if you're not finding anything on people. And then there well, are other research. And, and wealthy people are good at making sure that, the, that, that only those who they want to find them can find them. Understandably. I mean, I would, you know, exactly. should I get to that position? I, I could totally see why that would be good or to have, yeah, we, one person that we were looking for, we kept, I had a suspect, they, people kept saying, you got to talk to this guy for a campaign I was doing in Maine. And um, it, it wasn't a prospect because we couldn't qualify him in any way. So total suspect, but every once in a while I'd Google his name and try Googling it with quotes or Googling it in quotes with Maine after it or whatever. Finally found him in an obituary. As a surviving, not as a deceased, as a surviving relative of a deceased. And finally, it listed his company. It turns out he was not only the CEO of one venture capital firm that was listed, but three. Uh, the reason I couldn't find him was he had done a really good job at protecting his information. So all that research, though, many people would say, great, let's go out and do the ask. And that's, I think we're, one of the things I love about our day and age, the post kind of housing bubble burst here in, in the United States, is that a lot of people thought they were doing fundraising well uh, because they were getting annual gifts. But really all we were doing was invoicing our donors. We were just, there somebody had given a check one year, so we sent out a direct mail appeal that was little better than an invoice um, asking them to re-up or telling them it's time for them to pay their dues. Uh, what we left out was the engage step, which was the, get, the dating, the getting to know you. Um, I, so that is just really surprising to people when they find out that we actually there's some level of we get paid to talk to people about their life's aspiration their ambitions and their work um one time i when i was working with the nonprofit, a a a nonprofit prep school i I went to visit an alum and he took me on a two he gave me i think 20 minutes which is fine uh but he gave me a two-hour tour of his of his firm when he found out i was truly interested in him and his company manufacturing company, I got the coolest two-hour tour of of what he did. And so that's part of where we as fundraisers, volunteer or professional, need to be curious. 
You just need to be sincerely interested in other people and not so tied up in what we're trying to do. Exactly, and 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 focusing on and and that's that's difficult. And again, I think that's that's where you you transition from being a fundraiser to a professional. Um, is understanding that shoehorning someone into meeting your budget goal um, is not being a, do- a donor, what I call a donor's advocate. And that, of course, you have budgets to meet. But, but as I, I share with people when I lecture, as I say, you know, I have no fear at all that you will raise too much money <laughs> because your organization will figure out how to spend it no matter how much you raise. And guess what? They'll want more next year. So so the issue yep. is not just how much can you bag in a year. It's what are you doing to match up the needs of the organization to the hopes, wishes, and dreams of your donors because that's where real money is given. It's not well, just, and that's where if, yeah. if, you, if you focus only on, on dollars raised, you're going to run the, the very real risk of creating a slash-and-burn type fundraising program. Right, exactly. Where you go in and do, you just kind of slash in, and don't create anything for harvesting in the future, but you just kind of get all the money now, and then you and the worst part is you have to do it again next year. Right. Where, so, so what do you tell the donor when, when you're singing them a, a song? They're not going to believe you next time. You're, you weren't advocating on what they want to, to accomplish, and that becomes a problem in fundraising. I mean, any any fundraiser, any development professional worth their salt generally knows where they could go get today, you know, $10,000, 25000 $50,000. But they know that they shouldn't go get it because they're working on a much larger opportunity yes. for the donor than to just say, well, I'm just going to go get that money right now because it's well, not slash and burn. It's not just this year's budget. And, of course, you want to make your budget. But it's about the bigger issue because these are not dollars that are owed to your organization. And see, that's where I think this is this is why why I may be drawing you know creating a straw man. But I think this is why what we're doing in fundraising is so much better than sales. Sales is good. I'm not against sales. You know, fundraising coach is a for profit. I understand the sales process, uh, and all my donors to my nonprofits, most of them have been in some form of sales. So I'm not kind of poo-pooing sales. Well, what I love about fundraising is that you can, there's, if you're good at it, you have the long-term in view. And one of my mentors, Dave Dunlap from Columbia, uh, talks about how there was this one gentleman, the first, I think it was the first seven-figure gift that they got um, was cultivated by this one person they just wanted to wanted them to get, really wanted him to become a donor, but he just wasn't interested. It was tough not to crack, wasn't going to do anything, didn't respond to their appeals. But he kept talking about his private jet. So proud about his private jet. He had this jet. It was so great about it. So finally, Dave realized, wait a minute. Our CEO, our president of the university has this tight schedule. What if I ask this guy to lend his jet so that the CEO can make it better, or the president can make his travel better? Totally made the alum's day. He was so excited to be able to contribute his jet and ended up flying around too. And so they had the, all the relationship time with the president and this, this prospect. He ended up be opening his wallet after that. It was the engaging with the donor, finding out what his interests are, and trying to find out what, where his, yeah, his I mean, interests the, the, You showed him that, you were, that he represented to you more than just a wallet. Right. I have a great picture from the Occupy protests in Portland, Maine, of a guy, because I had said for years, donors are not your ATM. 
and I found a guy that had a had a, a plaque, you know, a sandwich board on it that said, I am not your ATM. So I think it's on my Flickr stream. If you Google <laughs> Flickr and Mark A. Pittman, you'll find it. Um, but so the engagement step leads could lead right away into the asking. I had one person, I, I've heard this figure, and I don't know where the stats come from, but it takes 18 months to develop a major gift. And most of the organizations I work with don't have 18 months to do that. Um, so and so I want to just I don't want to people to put this off and saying, well, I'm just cultivating a gift. I'm just engaging people because it could be right over coffee where you set up a time. I'd like to just find out more about you. I'd like to get you know you to get to know what we're doing. You're sitting at coffee and they say, I just love helping cats with two tails have just one tail. That's just I just get so excited about the one tailed cat when they're they were born with two helping them become normal again. I'm totally making something up. But if you find there's something that they're really passionate about that your nonprofit does, you can very honestly say, look, I didn't come here to ask you for money this time, but could I, or should I call you in a couple of weeks? Exactly. Um, and, it's, not just, it's not just about sort of browbeating people into giving. It's, no. It's helping them understand that, it, and this is why I always try to help people understand is that, if in a perfect world for your donors that are really committed to your organization, if they could give up everything, they would probably go and volunteer every day at your organization because they really care about that cause. But they can't. Yeah. They have families. They have jobs. So what they are doing with their money is they are paying you to make things happen that they want to have happen in the world. You are a solution to something that they would That's like excellent. to do themselves. So when you draw that connection and you help them understand that their money makes a real difference and that you are fulfilling their dreams, that's what philanthropy is about. And that makes it really rewarding to do, but it's so hard for many of us to get our heads around that. But right. that's the ask. That's where you're you're asking them to do something that they already want to do. Now, that doesn't always come across that easily. That when I Some of the tips that I give when it comes to the ask is if you're going to make an ask appointment, Face-to-face -face is always better for high-dollar asks, but it can be done over the phone or, or in, or in uh, letters, too. Um, I got a $25,000 check from one letter last year. <laughs> I've never had that kind of success in a fundraising appeal, but I knew we were under-asking, and so it just proved my point. Um, but if, when you're going to set up the appointment, make sure that you're clear uh, that it's a, there's a purpose for it. I'm, I'm I want to talk to you about our program. I want to uh, talk to you about our scholarship fund, our annual fund, something that you don't have to say, I want to ask you for money, but it, it makes the first couple of solicitations I did 20 years ago, I didn't tell them. And so I didn't listen to the donor because I was always trying to hook it back into my spiel. Uh, but being upfront with them saying, hey, I'm, I'm here to talk to you about the, our cause allows them also, when you're chit-chatting about the weather and the family and the kids, they'll come back to it. Hey, so what did, why are we here? What did you want to share with me? Right, and what and, people will say when you when you call to set up that appointment is, is you know, they'll they'll say, well, you don't need to come see me. You're going to just ask for money, <laughs> and 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 people say, say, well, what do you say to that? It's like that that's the ultimate like ending of a conversation. I said, well, no, it's not. I mean, w what I would say to some someone and have said many many times is, I would like to come and talk to you about the great work that we do, and of course. My hope is that you will support that, but I wouldn't dream of asking you until you have all the information. Nice. Oh, that's great. What I like to say is um, another thing, the tip that I give people is saying something to the effect of, well, I've got some stuff I'd like to show you, and you could print out the gift range calculator, which would 
is a huge relief to donors because one of the donors' biggest fears is I'm going to be on the hook for the whole thing. So right, when you right, show you them to give the whole thing, how a plan? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and I've always heard anecdotes. The other thing that I tell people is when you make the ask, when you finally get to the point of making the ask, you need to ask for the. I like to tell people ask for the complete dollar amount. If you're asking for a thousand dollars for the year. Ask for a thousand dollars. If you're asking for a hundred thousand dollars over a couple of years, ask for the hundred thousand, because that's the hardest part of the relationship. You're putting them on the spot. You're causing them to consider doing something that up until this point they likely haven't done, and then everything else after that is getting back on the same side of the table with them. So when you break it down to, I'd like to ask you to give a gift of a thousand dollars. Then you can say that's eighty four. Afterwards, you can say that's eighty four dollars. Right, but, but a then month. then what I always tell people is when you make that, shut up. Shut up! I give yeah. I have a big picture of Mr. T that's pointing at uh, during my during my talks. I have a picture of Mr. T and I look at you know he fills the screen and I say, "Shut up, fool!" Right? Well, <laughs> because I've talked too many people out of asks. If you can't remember to shut up, then the rule is first one to talk has to make the gift. Okay. Yeah. I'd see, in sales, it always was the next one who speaks loses, and it's not a win-lose thing. But the way I tell people is, you need to give the person some space. It's just out of respect. Right, you right. Ask them, them to do something so, they haven't done. So Mark, they need to process. I'm absolutely, of course, loving this conversation. I could go on forever, but I'm watching the clock here, and and I just want to oh, share wow. a quote. Uh, from one of our favorite people here on the show, she she every year uh, is now permanently scheduled as our as our Christmas holiday uh, show here on the Nonprofit Coach because she's so so popular and that's of course uh, the wonderful Kay Sprinkle Grace um, and her oh, quote about your book is Get Real will take on new meaning for board and staff members who read this book readable on point filled with memorable stories and well tested practices. This little book is a great addition to the field of pragmatic advice to those looking for more successful engagement in fundraising. And I just think that's such a beautiful summary to your book, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to reflect on Kay's quote. Oh, my goodness. She was she was a dear. I had written this manuscript, and I heard her speak at a conference, and just I love her anyway and her work. Uh, and I was able to – I asked her, you probably get this all the time, but would, would you have time to look at an unsolicited manuscript? And she read it that night and got back to me and said, this is great, and we need this. And uh, she's been a, a real a dear um, encourager over the years. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, really privileged Wait, that she did that. The Nonprofit Coach has now become uh, one of the, the most listened to uh, show, radio shows in the nonprofit world. And and part of that, I think, is Kay Sprinkle Grace. Her show is regularly rated every single year in the top ten. She's usually nice. number one, sometimes number two, uh, but incredibly popular here on the Nonprofit Coach. And, For good uh, reason. Well, you have good, your listeners uh, are good very reason. smart. Exactly, because she's so <laughs> skilled and so good at what she does. But for her to make that comment about your book when she is one of the foremost experts in this field um, really tells people how terrific this book is and how they need to run out and get it. Thank you so much. It's been a real, real joy being here, and, and I love ending on that note. That's really cool. Well, we haven't ended yet because I want to make sure that you tell my listeners how they can reach you. Okay. To the, I'm everywhere. If you just Googled Mark Pittman, Mark with a C, Pittman with one T, you'd find a whole bunch of different ways. The easiest focal point is fundraisingcoach.com. I do have a free newsletter that's right up in the upper right-hand corner with highlighted yellow fields. You just need to put in your name and your email. And every other week, I send you a free article on fundraising. I do talk about social media and fundraising. I talk about all sorts of different things. Um, but I'm also on Twitter. I'm very responsive on Twitter at Mark A. Pittman. 
That's terrific. Mark Pittman, again, thank you so much for being our terrific guest today. I have no doubt that this show and this episode will be very popular as well. We'll be back next week. Remember, it will be Thursday, not Tuesday, and we'll be here with Janice Gaupetti. This has been The Nonprofit Coach. We'll catch you next week. Thanks again, Mark. Thank you. You've been listening to The Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach.